0: Pray with me, Father in Heaven, it is now our heart's desire that Your Spirit would fall on us in a way that would enable us to hear and to listen, to yield to Your Word. And Father, we pray that Your Spirit would come with power to change, to transform, to move in us. Father, draw our hearts to this holy passion of glorifying You, and this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn, please, to First Peter and chapter two. First Peter, chapter two. I just want to read verses eleven and twelve. First Peter, in chapter two, please. Peter chapter 2, verse 11, hear the word of God. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, our agenda for this part of worship is to listen, to hear, to yield to, to God, to, to really hear what He's uh, saying to us. And what we've been hearing as we began First Peter was first that God has saved us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that because of this work in us, to change us, to transform us, to, to draw us to Himself, to change our inclination so that we would rather than being against Him, before Him, and to, rather than hate Him, to love Him, but to come to Him, and so that He's now changed us, our response to that is that we're to hope fully or completely in the grace that's to be brought to us uh, when Christ returns, if you will, that we're to hope completely in Him, that we're to be holy because He is holy, we're to fear Him, to fear God in reverent awe, and that we're to love each other. And then Peter went on to some more detail to tell us that because Christ is the cornerstone, that we are like living stones, that we're living stones being built one upon another in a spiritual house, the very temple of God, the place in which God dwells among us, and that we are a holy priesthood, really a royal priesthood. That is to say that because of the decree of the king, that's the royal part, that we've been set apart, that's the holy part, in order to be priests unto him, that is to serve him. To have access to Him, and even to intercede on behalf of others and draw them to Him as well. That we're to be a holy, a royal priesthood. We're to be a holy nation, a community of people set apart from all the other people in the world, special unto God, a people belonging to Him. While God can have anything and anyone He wants, He's chosen to have the Church, to have His people as His special possession. That we were people who have been called out of darkness into His marvelous light. We were people who were once not His people, but now we are His people. We were people who once had not been recipients of His mercy, but rather under His wrath. But now we have received mercy and grace to belong to Him. And and all this is true of us. And He says that He can sum up our response to all that and that we're to live as people who declare His excellencies, people who declare His praises. That's why we exist. That's why He saved us. And you see, we can do that since we've tasted that He's good and we know that He's good and we, we, because He saved us. And the way that we proclaim His excellencies, declare His praises, is most certainly by hoping in Him because His, His promises are excellent. What brings more hope and to know that Christ is going to return, and when He does, that sin will be eradicated. That when He does, that we will be like Him. And it says that we're to to be holy, uh, and, 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 and when we are holy, that declares or proclaims His excellencies because His ways are excellent. His holiness is great. And we're to fear Him because His justice and His love are excellent. And we're to love each other because... His character, the very character of love which He instills in us and calls us to, is excellent. And so when we hope, and when, we, when we're holy, and when we fear Him, and when we love each other, that's a way in which we proclaim how excellent God is. But now Peter's going to move us along, and he's going to say, let's just dig some more here. And what it really means to belong to God, what it really means to to, to proclaim how excellent how excellent he is. And so in these verses 11 and 12, there's a rather transition. Prior to this time, uh, Peter's been making uh, extensive and bold and deep theological statements with some application. And now as we, as we turn our attention uh, in the middle of chapter 2 here and on throughout the rest of this letter, we're going to find that he, he makes bold application with occasional theological references. Uh, so he's built the case, he's built the foundation and he's given us some hints as what's to come and how we're to live. But now he's going to stretch that out and now he's going to flesh that out really uh, uh, in, in, in the next part. And so we really need to be prepared. And so I think it's why he begins this sentence in verse 11 with the word Beloved. Remember, this is a group of people that are going through a measure of difficulty. All kinds of trial, he says, in a general way. Most specifically, we find that the society will have turned against these Christians in a variety of ways. And and we know history enough to know what's to come after this, that it's going to get more difficult in the the next decade or two, uh, from which Peter writes. And so he wants to say, in all of this, I want you to know, Your beloved, that is, that God really loves you. This one who is the creator of all, this one who is sovereign over all, this one who is all-powerful, this one who has all wisdom, He's the very one who loves you. So don't forget that in the midst of this, because Peter's about to call us, call them, call us to some very difficult things some things which aren't easy, some ways to live that are counterintuitive, especially in the context of the world in which we live. And he says, I want you to know the one who calls you to this is the one who loves you. The very creator of all that is so beloved. I want you to also remember, and this is by way of review from Peter because because, uh, he's already said this to them. He says, I also want you to know that uh, you're sojourners and exiles there in verse 11 that is that you're just passing through that this world is the old gospel hymn of the 30s says is not your home you know we 're just a passing through um, uh, and that's true we're here but it's not where we take our values it's not from which we sink into which we sink deep into and say yes this is all there is this life this earth this place he says no 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 you're governed by that which is in heaven So you're just really sojourners. This is a journey and you're moving through it. And you're exiles. You don't really belong here. Sojourners and exiles, he says. And now he tells them two things which are of great importance to them. Uh, One is that... They are to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. That's the first thing. He says, I'm going to give you a negative here. I want you to abstain from something. I want you to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And then the second thing he tells them is this in verse 12. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers that sink in, not if, but when they speak against you, calling you, if you will, those who do evil, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Alright? And so he's saying, on the one hand, I want you to abstain from something, I want you to abstain from the passions of the flesh, and on the other hand, I want you to, to do that for this reason, so that God would be glorified. And if there's anything that makes us strangers and aliens, as some versions have it, or sojourners and exiles in this world, it's, it's because of these two things that we value so highly. One, we value highly our souls. And two, we value highly the glory of God. We value souls so highly that we don't want them to be destroyed by that which wages war against them. That's of utmost concern to us. It's of utmost concern to Peter. He says, abstain from these passions which wage war against your soul. The sense in which they wage such wars, you don't want them to destroy the soul. You don't want them to destroy you. And secondly, he says, I want you to be concerned about your life because there's a higher calling even than just your well-being. And that is the glory of God. I want you to do this in such a way that the glory of God is not, and I like this word, but you might not, besmirched. I like the word besmirched. To me, it says, that that's, you don't want the glory of God smudged, made dirty, besmirched. Or we could say belittled in some way, or diminished in the eyes of people, however you want to put that. I like besmirched. That's that's the way we're to live. We're to live in such a way that God's glory is not diminished. The people don't look at Him and, 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 and view Him lightly. That makes us different. Because we're so concerned, first and foremost, about the soul. And when we speak of the soul, it isn't an exclusion of our bodies necessarily because our bodies are important. We're not human ultimately without them. Uh, in the, in the, God is redeeming the whole person uh, not only our souls, but our bodies as well. And the day will come when the resurrection will come and we'll receive new bodies and all of that. And that's necessary. In, in, in all throughout eternity, we will be people with bodies, ultimately, perfect bodies, spiritual bodies, but bodies nonetheless. And there's a great passage in the end of First Corinthians 15 if you want to read about that spiritual body. But uh, but, but but that's true. But, but what we're concerned about is this soul, this inner person, you will, this, this life, that's really life in us, who we really are because we know that the bodies that house us at the moment will die Um, I was thinking as I was writing this that it might not even last the day we don't know I don't know, there's no prediction for me or for you but who knows really, other than God these bodies, they just don't last I'm learning that increasingly as I get old but this don't last But even when this body dies and turns to dust, I will still exist. My soul will still live. And so the point isn't the body at this point in time. The point is who I really am, the soul, that which will live on. And and the question is, will that live on eternally destroyed or in the presence of God? And so Peter says, be careful, what we're concerned about is the soul. You remember what Jesus said, Matthew 10 in verse 28. He says, And do not fear those... I'll give you a second to get there if you want. Matthew 10, verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him, that is God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He's saying that this is the value of the soul, you see. It lives on. So, so don't be afraid of just the one who can destroy your body. We'll deal with that. Be concerned about the one who can condemn, if you will, your soul. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 26. To me, one of the most chilling statements that Jesus ever made. I'm sure they all should be equally chilling, but this one chills me. Perhaps more than most. Matthew 16, verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and I'll translate this literally, and forfeits his soul. In some versions it says forfeits his life. What does it profit a person to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? And you can see at that point in time the value of the soul, its worth, if you will, the whole world. That is, if you could pick one or the other of greater value, which do you really want? Your own soul or all of the world? He says, it really doesn't profit us anything if we end up with the whole world at the expense of our souls. That's its, its value. And you see, as Christians, we're, we're, we're uniquely, it seems to me, concerned about this soul and its relationship to God, whether or not it's accepted by Him, whether it's not joined together with Him, whether it's not part and parcel with God. Uh, People that I know who do ministries of compassion, for instance, who are Christians, are very concerned about the fact that there are people who are hungry. But when you really dig deep into why they're doing what they're doing, they're doing it because what they're really concerned about is the person's heart or the person's soul. Yes, they want to feed them. Yes, they want to care for them. That's their, their, their heart. But still, deep down, they say, but deeply, I want them to know Christ. And so this gives me a way into their life to meet this need. But yet I know there's still a deeper need because I know I can fill their stomach. But unless they come to faith, it really ultimately doesn't serve them for all of eternity. When tragedies take place in 9-11 or no matter what the tragedy is, in in war or disease or whatever, we're concerned and mood because we know the grief and the trauma and all of that is taking place in people's lives. But yet there's something else that we must ask. What about their souls? Because there's grieving, as the Scripture says, about those who die who know Jesus, and there's grieving about those who die who don't. And we're instructed not to grieve as those without hope when those we love pass away or experience tragedies. Because there's a difference, you see, because we know something that is true about their souls. While 9-11 was horrible, and the grief and destruction and trauma, massive. Still, when we hear stories that, that family members tell and say, but, but but, my dad was a believer, that makes all the difference. Because we're uniquely concerned about the value of a soul. I don't know about you, but when I'm in places and I don't know the people that I'm talking with very well, I don't know the condition of their own heart before Christ, and we're making small talk, I get very antsy. It just, It just... I just, now when I'm with a believer, I can talk baseball, I can talk anything, you know, we just, whoop. but But when I'm with people I don't know about their soul, after a while, I just get either bored on the one hand, because we're not talking about anything that really matters that I know, or I just worry about them. And that's, that's unique, you see, to Christians, that, that's really who we are, that's what we're concerned about the condition of people's hearts, the condition of people's souls. So Peter says, I want you to, to, to understand something, that there's a war raging against the souls of people, even your own. And you may say, but I thought my soul as a Christian is secure, and it is. But there are still passions that exist within us, What Peter calls the passions of the flesh, which I think in the New International Version, it's simply the passions or the desires of the sinful nature, which is probably a pretty good rendering in terms of a pretty good interpretation of that. Because Peter isn't talking simply about the passions of of our bodies, which are enormous as well. But he's talking about something on the inside. He's talking about something on the the inner person, these desires that drive us. And while we're we're believers in Christ, while sin's penalty has been paid, and while a day will come when sin will be utterly eradicated, we know by the Scripture and by our own experience that still sinful inclinations live within us. We just know that. And we know that these sinful inclinations uh, rise up. And, and Peter says, beware of them. Beware of those passions. Because they're out to kill you. They're out to destroy you. It's a war for them. that's being waged against against your soul. Against that which God has saved. Against everything that you... Believe to be true about him and your relationship with him. These passions of your flesh are out to destroy all of that. And you know, I read sentences like that in the scripture, and it just makes me, as I'm sitting there reading it, suck air. Because I think, because these things aren't like outside. He says these are passions of the flesh. These are things that are raging, warring, fighting, battling within. And you say, well, what are those passions of the flesh? Well, the, 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 the passions that... you are everything contrary to God. The things which, which cause me to desire to, to be puffed up or to be exalted, rather than God be exalted. that cause me to desire that which I shouldn't, whether it be lust, or whether it be envy, or whether it be jealousy. Those kinds of things that cause me to, to, to desire that which isn't good for me, that doesn't bring glory to God. And, and it brings all kinds of difficulty. Peter himself mentions these later on in his letter, for instance, in 1 Peter in chapter 4. and uh, In verse 3, he says, The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. You see, all these come from these passions of the flesh. And while it may feel like it's easy to be removed from that, that these things really aren't about us, they seem so bad, so horrible kind of thing, but rather that uh, uh, this sensuality is really within us, this lust, this desire to just be pleased, whether it's sexually, whether it's with food, whether it's with money, whether it's with using other people to meet our own pleasure needs, whatever that may happen to be. This sensuality, this desire to be exalted, to be pleased, exists uh, within us. These passions, uh, drunkenness, the lack of self-control that's identified there. Uh, Orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry, looking to someone, something other than God, to satisfy me, to please me. He says, that's all lurking within, so be careful. He says, that's a sobering thought. That's a sobering thought to think those things are there. But we see them. We see them in our we see them in our impatience. We see them uh, in our anger. We see them in our greed. We see them in our envy. We see them in our jealousy. All these things that, that we simply see in the course of our own lives. And he said, Pay attention to that. And abstain from them. Now you say that's easier said than done. But I assure you, it's not done until it's said. That is, that's the first step. Yeah, it's easier said than done, but we can't do it until it's said, meaning we need first to acknowledge it. We need first to acknowledge these passions exist in us. We don't simply deny them in the sense that no, that couldn't be true of me because I'm a Christian now. That's just putting a lid on a boiling pot. We say, no, I see they really do exist in me in humility to be able to go before God and say, well, how do I abstain from these things? Well, frankly, Peter's more interested in why we should abstain from these things than telling us how. But let me just give you just the common sense notion here of how we we abstain from these. First, of course, we must constantly have our nose in the Scripture. I know I say this all the time. You pay me to say this to you all the time. We need to hear this all the time because it's just the truth. Because... Nowhere else where will we, we get this kind of information. And not only simply information, but the grace to deal with it because God's Word is alive. And so as it comes to us as God's living Word, we've been through this, it works in us, that which is well-pleasing in His sight, to change us, to transform us. And yes, this is a struggle, and yes, it's over time. And yes, it's the very course of our lives to abstain from these passions and to put them to death, as the Scripture says. But we need God's Word in order to point them out and to remind us of them because no, no, nothing else that we read will really do it like that. And of course we must pray for the power of God and of course we must be in fellowship with each other because there's no other group of people that's going to give us this kind of information. In fact, it's interesting to me in First Peter in chapter 4, what I just wrote, read verse 3 is followed numerically at least by verse 4. And it says, "...with respect..." To this, that is, all these sins. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not do them in the same flood of debauchery. That is, not only will fellowship with unbelievers not lead us in the right way, but they'll be surprised at us when we don't follow them. They'll look at us like we're sojourners and exiles. Like we don't fit. Like we don't belong. They're thinking... Oh, you don't follow us in this. That's crazy. Why don't you do that? You see. And so we need to be in the Scripture. We need to be praying, have our face before God. We need to be in fellowship with each other. Because if not, the passions of the flesh will overtake us. Those are God's means for keeping the passions of the flesh from overtaking us. And we have to, as the Scripture says, put these things to death, for instance... Colossians in chapter 3. In verse 5, Paul writes this. He says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Uh, The old language of the 17th century was simply to command this, mortify the flesh. I like that. All right? I mean, put to death, okay, I get you. But mortify, kill it. Really put it to death. And this is a process of the course of our lives to keep stabbing stabbing and stabbing and stabbing and stabbing and shooting and shooting and shooting and shooting till it's dead. But if our goal is anything other than put it to death, it will seemingly rise up. John Owen, the great Puritan writer, who wrote on these matters probably as well as anyone, put it like this. He said, sin, unless we put it to death, will not otherwise die. But by being gradually and constantly weakened, he says, we've got to keep after it and keep after it and keep after it because it won't die any other way. He says, spare it and it heals its wounds and recovers strength. This isn't something we can ever be lax about. It isn't something we can ever take the weekend off. Because if we do, and it seems to to gain momentum and gain strength, and it's always, it's constant. It's the very course of our lives to put it to death. To put it to death. To put it to death. Now, Peter, as I said, I think, is more concerned at this moment in time to talk to us about why we're to do this rather than simply that we're to do it or even how we're to do it. Verse 12, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Because there's no higher reason for doing anything than, than for the glory of God. We're to live to proclaim His excellencies. And the way that we do that, on the one hand, is to abstain from these sinful passions. But on the other hand, then, to conduct ourselves in a way that's honorable, that's good, that's right. You notice the progression here, and this, I don't think, just sort of arbitrary. He says, first deal with the inner passions, and then the conduct will come. If you don't take care of the inner passions, the conduct simply won't come. Because our conduct comes, as Jesus says, as as we know, comes from the heart. It comes out of who we are. So often we like to make this excuse we say, "Oh, please forgive me. I'm not myself today. That's why I lost my temper." But, but but then again, who lost its temper? Somebody other than you? No, that's you today. That's who you are today. It wasn't the caffeine. That's you. Um and, and 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 so it's what's on the inside that's the problem. Now the good news for us is that's where the spirit of God dwells. That's where God is at work forming Christ in us. And thus, Romans 8.13 says, we put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit who lives in us. There's great hope for us. So we must put these things to death so that the conduct will come. But the conduct is very important because Peter says, "Here's here's, here's how you do this. You conduct yourselves among the Gentiles in an honorable way, in a right way, in a good way. So that, when they speak against you as evildoers, which they will, for instance, that passage i 've been sort of milking here in First Peter chapter four, if I go back to verse three again, he writes, "The time is past. The time that 's past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. he says don 't do that anymore, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry." with respect to this, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. You see, you'd want them to say, well, they respect you because at least you're living according to your principles. No, they malign us for that. They'll malign you for that. The Christians in the century in which, uh, in the time in which Peter uh, wrote, were being blamed for everything. Christians were being blamed for ruining the family because one family member would become a Christian and follow after Christ. And the other would be disappointed or disturbed by that. And thus it would said, this, this Christianity is disturbing the family. This Christianity is disturbing society because now we have people <coughs> who won't live the way that we live. They won't, they, they won't do business the way we do business because, because now they're Christians and they have this other ethic, this other standard. And it's ruining our, our, our way of life. Uh, Nero, of course, wanted to blame ultimately the Christians for the burning of Rome. People don't want, initially, uh, to be challenged by the faith of believers, the lives of believers, if we're living according to the truth. We see that in our own day. We're being accused these days. And well, frankly, this stuff doesn't bother me. I rather like it. Because it seems that everybody, people must be noticing who we are. Uh, we're, we're always we're being hassled, uh, especially in the last decade, of not being Tolerant. Because while we are to be kind and loving and tolerant of people, we're not tolerant of that which isn't true. And so we're not tolerant of beliefs and we're not tolerant of ideas, as we don't, quite frankly, expect people to be tolerant with us about these ideas. We like it when people realize what we're saying about Jesus, that he is the only way, that there is an exclusivity here about belief. And when people notice that, that's a good thing. Now, their initial notice may well be negative. But Peter says there's an antidote to that, so just wait to, to see what that is. We're not tolerant of, of beliefs. We're nice and we're kind and we're engaging, but but we don't have to affirm that, which isn't true. Now we're being maligned as evildoers because um, we're not in favor of, uh, uh, of marriage uh, between people of the same gender. And so now we're being called oppressive. That so we're the evil one. We've been accused of being oppressive to women because we do not believe that the right, that women have the right or anyone has the right to take the life of an unborn child. And so we're the evildoers in the context of our society. We can be the evildoers in an office when we're unwilling to do business in a way that's unethical or that goes against what we believe to be true that God is calling us to. And thus, we're the ones making the business unprofitable because we're the ones not willing to do whatever it is that everyone else seems so willing to do in the midst of that business. And so it's not uncommon for us to be called evildoers, oppressors, those who are intolerant. happened in the days of Peter, it happens in our day, will continue to happen. We shouldn't be surprised by that. And so Peter says, here's the antidote to that. He says, I want you to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That is, it's how you live that will ultimately be the trump card. It's how you live that will be the thing that draws them. Yes, you need to engage them in conversation. They need to know the truth. They need to know what you believe. But, but but you mustn't stop there. Your life must be consistent with what you believe. And you must show by the course of your life that God really is glorious. That's the difficulty that we're finding in this day, I think, in the whole issue of, of marriage. Can we as believers show the gloriousness, the excellency of God by instituting marriage by the way our marriages are lived out. Can we really show that? Can people really say, no, that must be the truth. Look at those marriages. Look at how those Christians live. That's the thing, you see. There will be the credible, the credible points in the minds of those who think we're evildoers. They simply won't be able to get away with the fact that it's good what we do. That's right. And on and on, that needs to be true in the context of our lives, and our lives, and our family, our businesses. We need to show that, no, this is the right way. This really does work in a sense. This is the way of God. This shows His gloriousness, His excellencies. This is the way that we show... That we love each other. And he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You say, well, when's that? When will that occur? Well, it's interesting in Scripture, God is said to visit us two different types of occasions. One, he visits in judgment. The other, he visits in grace. Grace. And I don't know which one Peter has in mind exactly. In one sense, both works. Both work. That is, there will be a time when Christ returns for judgment that everyone will stand up and say, He's the Lord. He's the right way. And certainly that will be glorifying to God. But, but really I, and you don't have to trust my word on this, most everybody else, thinks that it's likely that Peter is saying, this time of visitation is a time of grace. Uh, For instance, in Luke in chapter 1, in verse 68, John the Baptist's dad, Zechariah, was singing this song, prophesying. He said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. God visits as Zechariah understood it, there was a redemption that was taking place. In Luke, and chapter 7, and verse 16, after Jesus raises this widow's son who had died, verse 16, fear seized them all and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. At the bringing to life of this Young boy. People say, Oh, God's here. This is God. In Luke chapter 19, in verse 44. Let me begin with verse 41. It says, Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Scripture says, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, What would you, even you, I'm sorry, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. That is, this visitation that Jesus was right there with them. And they missed it. Right there with them to bring them grace. Right there with them to redeem them. Could Peter be saying this? And I think he is. And we need to abstain from the passions of the flesh. These passions that war, wage war against our souls so that when people see our good deeds, they'll glorify God. That is. They'll be converted. That is. They'll be changed. That is. They'll, be, they'll see this behavior in the lives of Christians and God will use it in a way to draw that to Himself. And they'll say, that's God. Remember what Jesus said. Let your light shine so that people will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven and give thanks to Him. Unbelievers don't do that. Unbelievers speak against us as evildoers, but God says, "I'll use your good behavior in a way that draws them to yourself." Now Peter's about to lay out for us and for them behavior in some very difficult circumstances, behavior uh, that's to take place when we're suffering injustice, behavior that's to take place when life is very difficult, behavior that's to take place in the times of times of persecution and difficulty. And I believe this verse is telling us. During those times, all kinds of sinful passions will rise up within you. You'll think that you need revenge. You'll think you need vengeance. You'll think that, that anger is appropriate. You think that, that you can then be envious of those people who aren't in your situation, jealous of those who don't have it as hard as as you do. But he says, "I want you to know, you to abstain from all of that. Keep your conduct honorable." And when they see your good works, it may well be that God will visit these people with grace. And they'll turn and say to Him, You're God, even better. My God is great. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, You're great. And I pray for me, for us, that we would, that I would, abstain from passions of the flesh to put... To death, the sinful passions. Father, that our conduct would be honorable, and I pray that You would use it in our families, and our neighborhoods, and our schools, and our businesses, in our states, in this country, throughout the world. Father, as Christians, live in a way that's pleasing to You, that people would see Your excellencies and say, "No, that's the way to live." to follow their God and Father that you would visit increasing numbers of people in our families in our schools in our communities in the state throughout the country throughout the world that you would visit increasing numbers of people with your grace so that they'll turn to you and proclaim your excellencies for Father you're deserving please do that in Jesus name Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As I do, I remind you that there are elders available to pray, so please take advantage of that. Now, the response to our benediction today is Latin. Oh, that's, don't say Latin. That's not the response, but it's in Latin. I'm not going all Melbourne on you or anything. I just... It's just a great, a great little saying you should know. It's out of the Reformation, and it's soli Deo Gloria. Most of you, many of you, have heard that little expression, soli Deo Gloria. It just means alone God's glory. That is, to God be the glory alone, completely. And you see, that should be the very cry of our lives that we should desire to live in such a way that God's honor not be besmirched, but rather that He be praised, not just by us, but by all who see us, that God be glorified. Soli Deo Gloria. Please receive this as God's benediction, not to Him. He was able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine through His power that is at work within us to be glory in the Church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Soli Deo Gloria.